If you would grab your Bible, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Uh, today Solomon's going to put his finger on man's first and most fundamental sin. That being worship of the creation rather than the creator. Man has by design uh, a hunger, an ambition, a quest for fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction and all of those sorts of things. And, and that hunger is right. The ambition is right. The quest is right. But what we've pursued in hopes of satiating those good and right impulses is wrong. We're constantly looking under the sun for what can only be conferred to us by he who is over the sun. We try to extract from creation the satisfaction that is only meant to be given as a gift by the Creator. Today we've arrived at the third movement in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it was in movements one and two that Solomon taught us that we are a vapor with no control, but that God is our ruler who has all control. Now, throughout both of those sections, Solomon has concluded that whether you're rich or poor, whether you're oppressed or an oppressor, whether you're wise or a fool, it's ultimately all the same. He says all of us, irrespective of where you fall on that spectrum, we're all creaturely vapors, consumed by our lusts and brought low by our wrestle for satisfaction, always striving but never apprehending. And the aim of every human heart is the same. The industrious rich man is after the same thing as the impoverished sluggard. Satisfaction. One thinks that he can work his way to it, and the other believes that he can relax his way to it. But they're both in pursuit of that same common goal, and they are both equally incapable of attaining it. Solomon has told us that God alone provides enjoyment and satisfaction from life under the sun. In chapter 2, verse 25, he said, Apart from God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? And in chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, he said, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Note, he said, you need wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them. That's the gift of God. Solomon is saying that the world cannot satiate, even as it cannot be satiated. The rivers can never fill up the oceans. The ground will always require more rain, and your stomach will always have to be filled again. Satisfaction isn't part of the created order. It comes from outside of the created order. Or to state it differently, satisfaction, like salvation, is by grace through faith. It is not the result of works, lest any man should boast. Solomon has asserted these truths in movements one and two, and he's argued for them in principle. But now in this third movement of the book, he's going to begin to apply them a little bit more specifically. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous 
evil. Here Solomon returns to a primary theme in the book, and if we miss it, we've missed everything. That's why he keeps restating it. If you've been paying attention, you're thinking, this is a familiar thing. He's said this a few other places. He says, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. This is the third time that Solomon has told us this. It's in every section of the four-section book that is Ecclesiastes, because I believe it's his primary point. He told us in 2.25, he told us in 5.19, now he tells us again in chapter 6, verse 2. Solomon is telling us that to live life under the sun is to live life under the curse of Genesis chapter 3, which alienated us from God, who is the source of contentment, making our resting state one of discontentment. That's our resting state. We come out of the womb, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, as enemies of God resistant to his rule and rebelling against his ways. But our resistance and rebellion cannot change the unalterable fact that David proclaims in Psalm chapter 16, verse 2, when he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And in reading Ecclesiastes, we can perceive the depth of David's statement there, can't we? He's not only saying that apart from God, he wouldn't have anything good because God's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is saying that, but he's also saying that apart from Yahweh, he has no capacity to enjoy that good because the gift of good things and the gift of enjoying those good things are two separate gifts. And God often gives one without the other. There's no experience of goodness and satisfaction apart from God because soul-level satisfaction is a gift that comes only from Him. Let's read verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind." Now, this section is one of those sections that makes us desperately want to reinterpret Solomon, isn't it? Uh, we want to see some meaning behind his words that are different than the meaning that they naturally convey. We want Solomon to be speaking from a non-Christian perspective here, or to be stating absurdities in order to make a point by means of contrast, or something along those lines. Some, as you probably know from church history, have wanted to disregard the book of Ecclesiastes altogether and just say, that's not part of the Bible. That's not for New Testament Christians. Jettison it. I've become convinced that one of the reasons that Ecclesiastes is a difficult book to interpret is because it's a book that contains difficult truths. We don't want it to mean what it means, such that one of the hurdles to our interpretation of the book is our emotional reaction to it. 
Jesus himself points out this challenge of biblical interpretation, doesn't he? He tells us that proper biblical interpretation is not only owing to intellectual prowess, but also spiritual uprightness. Think of Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus just after his resurrection, walking with the two men into the city. He tells those men that they've misunderstood the scriptures, and he attributes their misunderstanding not to slowness of mind, but to what? Slowness of heart to believe what was written. They didn't want to find in the text what was in the text, so it was very difficult for them to see what was actually there. Slowness of heart to believe what was written. Jesus also said, speaking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me for life. They didn't come to scripture to discover what was there. If they had, they'd have encountered the Christ in the text and then recognized him when he came, even as John the Baptist did. They came to scripture rather to confirm what they already thought and to support their foregone conclusions. And there's much of that in our day, is there not? Like the so-called progressive Christians who've managed to squeeze gay rights and women pastors out of the New Testament somehow. Same Bible, same translations of the Bible, same passages of Scripture under scrutiny. So what's the difference between the gay-affirming Christian and the anti-gay Christian? Probably salvation. But at a minimum, a heart that is slow to believe what is written. Because upon first encounter... Our heart is uncomfortably pricked by what is written in precisely the way that your heart may be uncomfortably pricked by what Ecclesiastes chapter 6 has just asserted. Solomon just said, to make sure that we state it plainly, Solomon just said, it's better to be a stillborn than to live a long, healthy, fruitful life if you're incapable of of enjoying it because God left you in your naturally cursed state, alienated from him. That's what he just said. Better to be stillborn. Better to taste nothing. Better to see nothing. Than to have an overwhelming gift given to you without the corresponding gift of being able to enjoy the gift that was given. That means that existence isn't a good in itself. Feel the weight of that. That's what Solomon has just said. Existence is not in itself a good. It's not in itself a good gift. Ask the people in hell. Is existence good? Maybe not. Solomon is communicating the urgency of faith in God, of humbling yourself before him to receive the gifts of salvation and satisfaction, because anything else, any other path, any other pursuit, you're better off having not been. Of course, Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, when he says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been what? Born. Born. We often read the book of Ecclesiastes, and and he communicates things with the gloves off, such that when we first read it in, in Ecclesiastes, we're thinking, that can't be affirmed by biblical truth. Then we read other sections of Scripture. It's like, oh, maybe those things are in fact confirmed by the rest of the canon. The man who is blessed to live under the sun with every comfort God's green earth can afford him, yet without the gift of satisfaction and enjoyment, is not actually blessed, but cursed. He's cursed. And hear me, that's most people. 
That's most people. Most people live their lives assuming, hoping, and praying that the next season will be better than the one that they're currently in because they're so dissatisfied and discontented with where they currently are that they're hoping that the next season will be something other than what the current one is. They can't do what Solomon says Christians ought to be able to do, eat, drink, and enjoy your toil. It's the gift of God. We seem incapable of doing it. Right now, our younger kids are all thinking, life will finally take off for me and become more satisfying when I'm like my older sister or brother. Right? They've got it all. Later bedtime, special birthday invites, extra privileges. I can't wait till I'm 12. Yes, then I'll be satisfied. Little do they know that their 12-year-old sister is thinking, man, if I was just old enough that dad would buy me a phone, then... I'd have some contentment and some satisfaction in my life. Little does the 12-year-old know that the teenager who has a phone is thinking, if I could just get my license, then I'd be satisfied. Little does the unlicensed teenager know that the licensed teenager is thinking, once I become an adult and I get out of mom and dad's house, then finally I'll be contented happy, satisfied. And little does the licensed teenager know that the young adult who's moved away is actually thinking, once I get married and have someone to share my life with, then I'll finally be contented and satisfied. And little does the single young adult know that the married person is thinking, if I was just married to a different person, then I'd finally be satisfied. You see, it's a curse to constantly be getting what you wanted, only to discover that it isn't what you wanted. And we're prosperous Americans, at least for the next 20 minutes or so. And that means that the vast majority of people, barring absolute ineptitude, will acquire phones and licenses and houses and spouses and children. Most of us will get all of the things that we thought were going to satisfy us when we were looking at adults who we think they've they've got it all. Most of us are in fact going to acquire those things. And after the acquisition of it all, they'll still be unsatisfied. They'll still be groping for more and hoping against hope that another vacation or another pay raise or a house with more space will finally do for them what every other material blessing has already failed to do. Solomon says, better to be stillborn than constantly consuming with no hope of being satisfied. Maddening. Maddening. And I mean that literally, it'll drive you mad. Current statistical data on so-called mental health tells us just how maddening it is, doesn't it? We're the richest, most entertained, most convenienced people on the planet, and yet we're the most miserable and medicated. Why? Because riches, entertainment, and convenience are a curse unless you have the blessing of God to enjoy it. All they become to you are monuments of vanity because they cannot do for you what you assumed they might. Let's look at verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. Verse 10 said, whatever has come has already been named. 
And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute it. Solomon is applying his doctrine of God's sovereignty. The state of affairs that Solomon just described, he says, was named or determined by God. God named that. That state of affairs, that condition that he just described, that's God's providential offspring. What has come, that being the cursed condition he just described above, has already been named. God named it, and then he sent it to you. And then what's he say? And there's nothing you can do about it. God named it. God sent it. You can't do anything about it. You can't strive with someone stronger than you to alter it. We can see these themes reemerging from chapters 1 and 2. What are we? We're Hebel. We're Hebel. Right? We're vapor. We're mist. No strength, no advantage, no leverage, no control. God names it. God sends it. And here we are dealing with it. He said this in chapter 1, verse 13, didn't he? It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Again, God created the world as an insatiable place that cannot satiate on purpose. He did it on purpose. God cursed man such that our hearts are bent toward the worship of the creation that cannot satisfy rather than being bent toward the worship of he who actually does satisfy. Romans 8, verse 20, 21 is incredibly explicit on this point. The creation is a flashing neon sign pointing to the goodness and sufficiency of its creator, but we're born spiritually illiterate, so we can't read the sign. So in our inability to read the sign, you know what we do? We camp out underneath it, marveled by its light, but never actually getting to the destination that it was trying to take us to because we're spiritually illiterate. We can't read the sign. We wrestle against this reality with all of our might, trying to squeeze out of life under the sun something that legitimately is not bound up in it. Grinding, groping, grasping for more of that which will leave us unsatisfied yet again. Never understanding it's supposed to. It's supposed to. Creation is doing exactly what God intended it would do. In Genesis chapter 3, God determined to frustrate man through creation, did he not? Solomon is in some ways still responding to the objection of inequity and injustice that he posed in movement 2 of the book, wherein we see the wicked prospering and the righteous oppressed. He's saying, don't be too shallow in your assessment of what you see under the sun. He's saying, don't mistake material gain for the blessing of God, because apart from God, who can have enjoyment? It is a curse to have all of the things that should, by any logical assessment, make you happy and still find that happiness and satisfaction escapes you. That's a curse, and it's maddening. Which is, of course, why the most obscenely wealthy are often the ones who go mad. You've probably seen that phenomenon. Because apart from God, who can have enjoyment? Solomon is telling us that without the saving intervention of God, we will only experience life under the curse of Genesis chapter 3. That's it. He wants us to understand that life under the sun is life that is cursed. This should be uncontroversial as a, a biblical doctrine. Correct? 
God curses the creation in Genesis chapter 3. And Solomon is simply describing the reality of what life is like in that cursed state. You see, this is the gospel of Ecclesiastes, if you want to call it that. And like any good gospel proclamation, you linger long on the bad news such that when you get to the good news, it actually falls on the hearer with an appropriate weight and refreshment. When you rush to the good news without getting your eyes in your head first, then the gospel feels to us to be as light a thing as we have treated it in the American church for the last 50 or so years. Life is a curse, a rat race, a continual exaction of your time and your labor as you work to satisfy your longings, a task that will never be completed or accomplished. A Scottish psychiatrist of the 20th century once said that life is a sexually transmitted disease with a mortality rate of 100%. (laughs) I did think that that was kind of funny. But that's how Solomon sees it, isn't it? That's how Solomon is talking about life under the sun if you're cursed to live in it apart from the God who is over the sun. Every success is fleeting. Every satisfaction is brief. Every release of tension is momentary. And why is that? Well, it's because of verse 3. Man's soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Man's soul is not satisfied with life's good things. I agree with Jeffrey Myers, who's a very helpful commentator on the book of Ecclesiastes, that the word good here is being used teleologically. That is to say that we must identify the telos, or the purpose of life, if we're going to properly enjoy life. To see the good and have your soul satisfied is to discern the point of it all. Man's soul is not satisfied with life's good things because man's soul, until reshaped by God, doesn't want the good thing that life is pointing toward. For Solomon, life is a sacrament that points beyond itself. And the curse is living in a sacramental world without sacramental understanding. Life under the sun like the sacraments of communion and baptism, is something that can confer deep meaning and deep satisfaction if you understand and embrace what's going on. But if you miss the meaning, then the sacrament is an absolute frustration. Think of the communion meal. It's right here in front of us. Tiny piece of bread, a little slurp of wine. How satisfying is that? What, what, what can that do for you? Think of baptism, a pool that's large enough for one person, and you're not even in there long enough to get clean. What is that? What does that do for you? Nothing. Nothing. It's not enough food to nourish. It's not enough water to cleanse. It's not enough to do either of those things because it isn't supposed to do those things. God does those things as mediated through those elements for those who embrace them by faith. For those who embrace them by faith. God mediates the nourishment and the cleansing through the sacrament. The sacrament doesn't do it, can't do it, and isn't supposed to do it. In the same way, this world, this life, our work, our marriage, our children, our eating, our drinking are like the sacraments, incapable of nourishing us in the ways that we actually need to be nourished. But if received in faith, 
God will deliver the real nourishment through those media in a way that cannot be accessed except by grace. Without the meaning of the communion meal, the meal itself is utterly unsatisfying. Can we agree about that? So it is with life under the sun. If you fail to grasp its meaning, it will be as unsatisfying to you as a thimble of wine and a crumb of bread. But if you grasp its meaning, the whole world opens up to show you the goodness of God. I said in the prologue that Solomon was going to put his finger on man's first and fundamental sin, worshiping, pursuing, elevating the creation over the creator. I believe that identification is made in chapter 6, verse 3, when Solomon says that man's soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Man's sin is that he is not satisfied with the good that God has given him. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says it this way, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I don't believe that, that means that all men fail to live up to God's glory. I don't think that's what's meant there by all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Of course we can't live up to God's glory. We're not intended to live up to God's glory. It'd be unreasonable to expect that we should. Ours is a failure to perceive and respond to God's glory. We fall short of God's glory in that we miss it in all of the things that are screaming to us about it. This is a sacramental world. Every good thing is that flashing neon sign that's pointing us to a better thing, namely the God who made it. But we suppress that truth in, un in unrighteousness, insisting on more of the thing while ignoring the God who made the thing. Good food, good wine, a good woman, a good man. And our souls aren't satisfied because we experience those things in the most shallow way that they can be experienced, missing their meaning such that they become to us as unsatisfying or as fleetingly satisfying as this bread and this wine are if we fail to see the good that they are pointing us to. This is our sin. This is our cursed state. Always experiencing the goodness of God's creation and always failing to experience the goodness of the God who made creation. Because we can't get from the thing to the goodness of God that the thing was telling us about. This is life under the curse. This is a sacramental world, so we need sacramental understanding if our souls are going to be satisfied with the good things that God has given us. But then, the reason I'd call this the gospel of Ecclesiastes is because what has Solomon made incredibly clear? You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't see that on your own. Or to use Solomon's language, you can't perceive that on your own. You can't see the spiritual reality behind the physical sign on your own. You don't have those eyes unless they're given. And this is why Solomon's refrain has been to humble ourselves, to realize who and what we are, because that is the only position we can be in to receive it, rather than wrestling for it, rather than working for it, rather than trying to see if we can squeeze those things out of the created order. Rather, we humble ourselves before the God who made the world, and we say, Lord, you know how this goes without your intervention. You know how this goes without you conferring to me salvation and satisfaction that corresponds to it. 
So Lord Jesus, would you come and would you give me what only you can give me? This is what Solomon is working to position us for, to be those who receive from God's hand rather than those who try to wrestle with him. Let's pray.